0: Let's begin with prayer. Father, it is an inestimable privilege to consider your inestimable son and to realize that this one whom we address as Lord is indeed very God of very God. How could it be otherwise for creatures such as we are to ever be brought near unto God, save God himself do it. We rejoice in this distinctive and unique gospel because of this distinctive and unique person. And we pray, O Lord, that as has happened throughout the history of the church, where his identity is attacked or diminished, where he is reduced to the level of the creature, we pray, O oh Lord, that we may be able to stand firm on the faith once for all delivered to the saints and revealed in the scriptures, particularly in this wonderful first chapter of Hebrews. Lord, we know this chapter has and continues to be a battleground between the forces of unbelief and the forces of orthodox belief in the revelation of your Son, his true identity and his true glory. And so deepen our own understanding of what is here as well as our love for the person who is revealed here. And with Thomas of old, we might fall before his feet and confess my Lord and my God. And so we ask it in the name of that precious son, who is your beloved and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now, we have reached a discussion of the parallelism in verse 3 of chapter 1. This very important uh, dual line, 3A, He is the radiance of his glory or the effulgence of his glory and the exact representation or the character of his nature. Now, these phrases are parallel, and that is the reason that they are joined by the coordinating conjunction in that clause, the word and, and I would like to treat them in terms of classic Semitic or Hebrew parallelism, namely the rubric, what is A and what is more B. The line, he is the radiance or effulgence of his glory, what is A, and what is more than A, namely B, he is the exact representation or exact character of his nature. When you consider the lines that way, you see what we have is not a mere symmetrical parallelism, but what we have is a parallelism of expansion. On the one hand, the effulgence of the glory of God the Father The word effulgence <clears throat> means to shine out from or to shine forth from. It comes from effulgere, a Latin verb, which means to come out with radiance. And therefore the glory with which the sun is radiant is the glory of his father. That glory which shines forth from the father is the glory which is radiated in the effulgence of the glory of the sun. But more than that, more than that radiance and brilliance, is the second clause the exact representation or the exact character, or I like the uh, better translation, in my opinion, the exact imprint for the greek word here is character from which we get our english word character but character is a little bit off putting or less significant to us uh, here uh, imprint uh, carries the force of the word and so if we translate it the exact imprint of his that is his father's nature And here the Greek word is hypostasis. We discussed that word last week in the Christological discussions after Nicaea, particularly the three Cappadocians and Athanasius. But here we see the term used in the inspired scripture translated in your English version, nature. This is a powerful word. This is a word which is uh, describing or articulating the essential being, the very substance or subsistence of God himself. It is a word which in this context describes the godness of God. What is God? Kind of a being is God. He is God. In his godness. And therefore, upostasis here is a very strong, uh, underscoring of the divine essence, the divine godness, the stuff of God. Now, I use stuff cautiously there, but it's to give you an idea of what it is that God is. Stuff here is not any created stuff. It is his very essential being. It is his ontos, his ontological essence, the being of his essence in itself. Notice then, more than the shining forth of the radiant glory of the Father, brilliant as that is, but more than that is the imprint of the very substance, the very nature, the very being of the Father upon the Son. He bears the imprint of the character of his Father. Now, the synonyms for translating this word, apostasis, in your English translation, you may have nature, you may have being Uh, The other words that could be used here are essence, essence from the Latin verb to be, essa, which means the being, the existing being of a particular entity. Subsistence is another term which is often used to translate this word upostasis, meaning how he subsists in his existence. That is how his being manifests itself in existing. And that subsistence is once again his godness, his divine nature, the the essential character of the Godhead. All right, so we have an additive, augmentative, expansive parallelism here which moves from the radiant glory of the Father that is reflected in the Son, contained in the Son, to something that is even more strikingly powerful. He is the very imprint of the being of his Father. He is the very essential nature of his Father. He is the very subsistence of his Father. The symmetries then... In these two lines are symmetries of equivalence. That is, line B telling us more than line A, expanding our knowledge of one who is the radiance of the Father's glory. It tells us about his being, his substantial essence, His subsistent apostasis. What kind of a being is he? He is the exact imprint, the exact imprint of God's essence, which means that he is God as the Father is God. He is upostatic, he is hypostatic deity as the Father is hypostatic deity. He is autotheos. He is God himself as the Father is God himself and, we may add, as the Holy Spirit is God himself. Now, we are not articulating a doctrine of three gods. These three persons are one God. How it is that three persons with distinct centers of consciousness can be one ontological essence is a mystery beyond the realm of human comprehension i don't even believe that glorified human intelligence will be able to comprehend it it will retain remain an everlasting mystery but it is no mystery to god himself for he has revealed that he is one God in three persons, not three persons in three gods. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The unity of the Godhead is a biblical mandate and doctrine, but... The triunity of that Godhead is also a biblical mandate and a biblical doctrine. We therefore hold the two things together, though we cannot exhaustively comprehend them. We can get our hands around, we get our minds around part of it. Okay, We can understand the Trinity to a degree, for this verse reminds us that we have a divine apostasis that is composed of two persons. I don't mean composed in the divisionary sense, that is divided into two persons. It is composed in the sense that it is fully composed. They are fully God, as well as fully distinct in their own individual personality. Distinct, but never separate. Thank you, Tertullian who gave the church that classic phrase. One God and three persons, distinct persons, but not separate persons, for if they were distinct and separate, then we would be tritheists, we would be worshiping many gods, contrary to the clear testimony of Scripture. All right, so this clause here in verse 3 is extremely important to our doctrine of God. It is extremely important to... our doctrine of Christ. It is extremely important to our Christology, that is, our doctrine of Christ in relationship to the Father. It is a crucial proof text or a crucial passage for understanding our, uh, our, our confession that Jesus is very God of very God. So, on the top of the next page, the son of god possesses the character or imprint of the nature essence or being of god as god the father as a human father stamps his imprint on his son that is the son is of the same nature as his father he is a human being so god the father stamps his imprint on god the son that is God the Son is of the same nature or essence as his Father. Namely, he is a divine being or he is God being, hyphenated. He is the apostasis of his Father. That powerful word here, you see, is as strong as the language of John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. The writer of Hebrews is saying it with a different vocabulary, but he is saying exactly the same thing, and using a very powerful word to underscore that equivalence. The Son is the very apostasis of his father, the very substance, essence, subsistence, existence of his father with respect to To his being, a divine being, and so we confess with the church of all the ages the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is God. That is the singularly unique confession of Christianity. Without that confession, you have no Christianity. You have a religion of the natural man. You have a quasi-pagan religion, but you do not have Christianity. There is no other religion in the world which claims that God has come in the flesh and has indeed (coughs) undertaken the salvation of mankind by joining himself to a human nature. God and man in one person Forever, No other religion. Christianity lives or dies by that unique testimony. Give up the deity of Christ and you give up the gospel of salvation. Why do I say that? Notice the next paragraph on your handout. Why is it necessary for the cleansing of sin to be performed by God the Son? The very next clause in verse 3a, actually the clause after the next one, when he had made purification of sins, talking there about the cross of Christ and the atonement on Calvary, why is it necessary for this cleansing to be performed by God the Son? And I refer you to Anselm, of Canterbury and his book, Why the God-Man, or in Latin, cur deus homo, Why the God-Man, Anselm giving a classic articulation of the theanthropic essence of Christ with respect to salvation. In other words, Anselm addresses the question Why do we have to have a God-man as our Savior? And his answer? Oh, I haven't read it, you said. Well, let me ask you without having read Anselm. If you confess Jesus of Nazareth to be very God of very God... And I ask you the question, why is it necessary for the cleansing of sin to be performed by very God of very God? You answer, what? Ben?
1: The justice of God requires that the same human nature that has sinned should likewise make such satisfaction for sin.
0: Couldn't you make that satisfaction? You have that same human nature. Couldn't Ben Tavern make that satisfaction?
1: No, therefore, that had to be, and no human nature, no human could be found that was sinless, and no human nature would be capable to sustain the wrath of God against sin. And therefore, had to be God.
0: But why? In other or words, couldn't I right? find a perfect human being who would be sinless, and couldn't he make that a satisfaction?
1: Well, he would not be able to under, he would not be able to sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath against sin. Why? Heidelberg catechism. <laughs> uh,
0: I'm happy that you can articulate the catechism, Ben. I want you to tell me what it means.
1: Well, <laughs> no, because he had to he, he had to suffer. Not only had to had, did he have to uh, render full satisfaction, but he had to also sustain the punishment against sin.
0: Okay, but couldn't I have a perfect human being sustain that punishment against sin? Could I have a sinless man sustain that?
1: No, because no human nature can sustain the wrath of God. Why? He's not capable. Why? Because because he's human.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: Robert, what am I I fishing for here? I think
2: you're uh, fishing for the fact that. uh, a sinless human being is finite, so you can't uh, cleanse uh, the infinite. I mean, or multiple multiple individuals. You can only die for your own sins. Okay, good.
0: Uh, Robert has has noted the connection between a finite satisfaction and an infinite. Requirement or an infinite uh, number of uh, sins to be satisfied. More precisely, even take the one individual sin, one of your individual sins. What kind of a punishment does it deserve, Ben? Internal punishment. All right. Now, if I'm going to pay off an internal punishment, if I have a perfect human being. Sinless human being, can that sinless, perfect human being pay off an eternal punishment? Eternal death.
1: I mean, he would have to. He would go. He would go to hell.
0: He would go to hell. So, what do I need to pay off an eternal punishment? An infinite, an infinite person can do
1: it.
0: Give, give, give me, give me parallels. Talk to me in parallel. If I have an eternal punishment, what do I need to pay it off? Eternal satisfaction and eternal satisfaction from an eternal being eternal person okay all right now that's the that's the precise answer that Anselm addresses and someone more profoundly than Anselm namely Jonathan Edwards where Jonathan Edwards articulates perhaps better than anyone else in the history of the church not just in sinners in the hands of an angry God but he articulates the fact that you must have an infinite being make satisfaction for your infinite penalty. Even one of your sins requires an infinite penalty or eternal penalty, and therefore only an eternal person can make that satisfaction. Consequently, the fact that, as you were alluding from the catechism there, Ben, the uh, relationship between the human nature of Christ and his work of satisfaction, it is because of who he is that in adding that human nature to his divine nature, he is capable then of sustaining, to use your language, capable of paying an infinite penalty for one of my sins let alone an infinite penalty for an infinite number of sins. As Robert's alluding to, you know, the mass of our sins out here uh, uh, would take someone who is very God to make payment and cancel them uh, in, in our place. So this theanthropic character of Christ, the fact that he must be God and man in order to render the satisfaction in his human nature, but render the satisfaction as God in making that satisfaction, so that in that divine nature, as it's joined to the human nature, an eternal satisfaction from an eternal person is rendered to an eternal penalty. Alright, now this point, you see, is lost upon any view of the cross which makes it mm, an imitation of uh, self-sacrifice, a uh, object of pity and sentiment, namely the bleeding Jesus of Catholicism's crucifix. That is an attempt to sort of melt your heart in pity. Uh, for this suffering figure, Uh, no, that doesn't render satisfaction. Uh, The imitation of Christ as the one who gives up his life for a great cause, that doesn't render any satisfaction, that doesn't pay an infinite penalty. So we're back to another issue in modern discussion of the cross of Christ. Is the crucifixion of Jesus a propitiation, or is it an expiation? Looking here at verse 3, the word purification might lend itself to the uh, sense of purification or cleansing. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews might be uh, felt to lean in the direction of expiation and not propitiation. Well, <clears throat> that would be short-sighted <coughs> and giving the writer short trip because He is not giving his full doctrine of the atonement here in this verse. He is just simply talking about the cleansing impact of the work of Christ at this point. He will later on go on to talk about that sacrifice in detail. And in chapter 9 in particular, he will outline a more propitiatory aspect of that atonement. But the modern liberal mind recoils from that term propitiation because the modern liberal mind recoils from the notion of the wrath of God. As Ben articulated, it is the wrath of God that is at issue here, All right, and the liberal mind does not believe in a God of holy or just wrath. The liberal mind uh, believes in a God who is a sugar daddy in the sky. He is indulgent of all kinds of uh, of whims and errors and mistakes and foibles and so on. He'll pat you on the head and return you to, uh, to his favor, so to speak. But he does not punish anyone. He certainly doesn't punish anyone with eternal damnation. That is a primitive and barbaric idea and must be removed from Christianity if we're to have a Christianity which is worthy of the enlightened 21st century man, woman, or child. All right, so we're, we're on a, uh, a point here which sticks in the craw of modern liberal theology. They do not like the notion of paying a penalty or satisfying a debt for the wrath of God against sinners. That is certainly not the doctrine of Anselm. It is not the doctrine of Jonathan Edwards, as uh, most of you will know. It is not the doctrine of the scriptures. So we come back to this practical element of the deity of Christ. Why are we underscoring this ontological deity of the Son of God? Why are we insisting? upon the fact that his apostasis is of the very same essence, the very same being as the being of God the Father. Why is it crucial? It is so crucial that you can't be saved without it. That is how crucial it is. If Jesus of Nazareth is to be patronized, as C.S. Lewis once said, as a mere good man, then he is a megalomaniac and is worthy of no adoration from any human being. He's a madman and he should have been locked up. But if he is, in fact, God of God as he claimed to be, then he is the very Savior suited to your need. Because your need is the satisfaction of an eternal judgment against the offended holiness of God. And there's only one way to pay it no creature could ever pay it. No angel could ever pay it. You could never pay it. Only God himself could pay it. Praise God that the Son of God paid it on your behalf and therefore you do go free because he bore your penalty and buried it in eternity as only God could bury it. No creature could ever bury that sin away. All right, so it's not just this doctrine of the deity of Christ, which we're stuck on as Orthodox Christians because we're kind of old-fashioned fundamentalists. This doctrine is at the heart of our redemption. Without this Jesus, we have no hope of heaven Or to paraphrase the apostle, we are of all men and women most miserable, not just over the resurrection, but over the fact that there's no clear atonement made, no penalty paid, no satisfaction rendered. I'm going to have to go into eternity and pay the debt myself if Jesus isn't God and didn't pay it for me. Any questions or comments about that? This is not just a theoretical discussion of ontological Christology. This is a practical discussion of your salvation. Your life is at stake here with who Jesus of Nazareth is. That's why it's wonderfully important. Okay. Notice in that line uh, 3D, verse 3D. The author says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's the significance of this phrase sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, let's turn over to chapter 10. And if somebody has verses 11 and 12.
3: sacrifices which can never take away sins but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God
0: what's the contrast what's the contrast there standing and sitting standing and sitting who stands
1: the, uh, priests. the
0: Old Testament priests stand why do they stand because the work is never finished because the work is never completed but Christ sat down at the right hand of glory he finished sacrifice once and for all the writer places this at the beginning of his epistle in this exordium, because he wants to emphatically underscore another aspect of the finality of the person and work of Christ. We have talked about the finality of the revelation that is given in the Son. We talked about the finality of the corresponding attestations in the Charismata, which are noted in chapter 2, verse 4. And now we have the finality of the work of sacrifice and reconciliation or atonement emphasized at the outset of this letter. Finality, 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 eschatological finality, once and for all finality. There is no more sacrifice of bulls and goats. There is no more animal offerings. No, not even in a millennial temple. Please, do not. Undercut and repudiate my Lord's finished work by saying you're going to have to have more of it in a millennial temple. And then don't try to wriggle off the hook by saying, oh, they're only commemorative sacrifices. They're not expiatory sacrifices." There is no sacrifice in the Bible that is merely commemorative. They are all expiatory and propitiatory. If this Passover lamb of God has been slain once and for all for us, that is the end of it. Period. What kind of a portrait would you have in some kind of future temple with Jesus sitting on his throne down one end of the street and on the other end of the street you've got priests slaying bulls and goats? What kind of a picture is that? That's not a picture of the glory of heaven. That is a picture going back to the Old Testament. That's a picture of renaissance Judaism. That's what it is. That's not what he's talking about here. He sat down. He didn't sit down to look at more sacrifices. He sat down because it's over, canceled, annulled, gone. We don't have to bring those things anymore, and they will never be brought. He is the eschatological sacrifice. He's the once and for all offering for sin. Expiatory, propitiatory, commemorative, he's all of it. He's the whole enchilada, and there is nothing more needed. Please be content with the finality of the atonement and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That's in the book. All right, so, the majesty on high, which is at the right hand of where he is seated, is interpreted in chapter 8, verse 1. If we turn... Quickly to chapter 8, verse 1. Art?
4: Chapter 8, verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven.
0: Notice the use of the phrase majesty in the heavens there and majesty on high here. They are synonymous. So we are talking about the majesty of God on high in heaven. There is no question about the eschatological character of this place where Jesus has taken his seat. He has taken his seat in the eschaton. Any questions? All right, now, I call on Athanasius and his exegesis of these passages, particularly verses, uh, verse 3, to help us in our own understanding of the meaning of the text. Why do I call on Athanasius? Well, first of all, because most Reformed Protestants don't know anything about him, and they ought to. Hear, hear. You all ought to read a little Athanasius. It would be good for your soul. Why? Because he nearly died so that you could believe in the deity of Christ. Five times he nearly died so that you could believe in the deity of Christ. Five times he was chased with an inch of his life by those who wanted to kill him for his defense of the deity of Christ and the Nicene Creed. Five times he barely escaped so that the Nicene Creed would be defended and promoted, which was to defend and promote what we just talked about, the essential ontological deity of the Son of God. It has been said, athanasius contra mundum, which is a Latin phrase, athanasius against the world. One man, one man between heresy and orthodoxy. One man. That's How close it was after 325 A.D. Athanasius hid and wrote, wrote and hid from the caves in the desert of Egypt, where the monks and the hermits of the Egyptian desert hid him and carried him from one hiding place to another so he could not be found. From Germany back to Alexandria, back to the desert back to Palestine, one exile after another. And yet Athanasius continued to write. To write what? To write that Jesus of Nazareth was God of God, and that the Nicene Creed, which had labeled him homoousias, of one substance with the Father, was biblical. So we come to Athanasius and his exegesis of Hebrews 1, verse 3, and we learn from Athanasius About the deity of Christ. For remember, the great enemy of Athanasius was the Jehovah's Witnesses. You say the Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes, the Jehovah's Witnesses of the fourth century, the Arians, as they were called then. The Jehovah's Witnesses of the 20th and 21st century are the Arians of the fourth century. The Arians hated. Athanasius, the Arians tried to murder Athanasius, the Arians tried to kill him. They almost succeeded. And Athanasius writes in defense of the deity of Christ, stunning exegesis of Hebrews chapter 1, particularly verses 1 to 4. Let's look at a summary of Athanasius' interpretation of these very crucial verses. Notice, says Athanasius, he has made the world. He has made the world. Says Athanasius, having made the world, is he made? Or let's put it this way, having created the world, is he a creature? To ask the question is to answer the question. A creature is not the creator. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I created anything. That is, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Spoke the word and said, Lazarus, come forth, and created life out of death. Spoke the word and water turned into wine. 160 gallons of the best wine anybody had ever tasted. I don't know about you, but I can't ever remember having created anything. And I'm a miserable critter. So... Creatures don't create. Now we use the word to talk about manufacturing, fabricating, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But here we're specializing in treating the word in terms of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the word, fiat creation. He spoke creation into being and it came into existence. Alright, so Athanasius. Having created the world, is he a creature? He is not a creature because he who creates is uncreated. That's what the text is saying. Or to verse 3, he who has the radiance of glory has the glory of the one from whom the radiance shines forth. If he is the very effulgence of his glory, then he is the glory of that effulgence. And finally, the word apostasis. As Athanasius emphasizes this word, and as I said last week, eventually realizes that he has to compromise on its use at the end of the post-Nicene discussions. But here, in his exegesis of apostasis, in Hebrews 1 3, he says, Subsistence or existence or upostasis means it is. The Son is the exact imprint of the Father's existence. His isness is the exact imprint of the Father's isness. His existence is the exact imprint of the Father's existence. As the Father exists or subsists, so the Son exists or subsists. Go to Athanasius. Yes, even you Calvinistic Christians, go to Athanasius and learn your Christology. Learn your doctrine of the Trinity. Learn what this genius articulated. Out of the Nicene formula and its battleground for 50 years after 325. He is one of the most remarkable theologians in the history of the church. I care not one whit whether the Eastern church venerates him with icons or anything else. That is irrelevant. It is the record that he left. It is the writings that he wrote. It is the defense that he defended of Nicene orthodoxy, which makes him a giant. So, read his most accessible book called On the Incarnation of the Word. It would take you maybe four hours. You can download it from the internet. It's in public domain. There's one part of it that gets into the philosophy of the Logos. You could skip over that, I allow you. But read the rest of it. And let your soul rejoice. It is a remarkable accomplishment. Let alone his attacks on the Arians. Let alone his exposition of the Nicene Creed. All of those would be icing on the cake. But if you want to read one work of Athanasius, like read one work of John Calvin, read his Institute, want to read one work of Athanasius, read the Incarnatione Verbi, or On the Incarnation of the Word. It is good stuff. Come on. You'll go to your local Christian bookstore and you'll pull down some Christian fluff work and, you know, and you'll be entertained with it for maybe a couple of hours. But work your mind out on some serious, beautiful, penetrating theology and get yourself lined up with one of the great Christian fathers of all time and realize that your faith In the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of Trinity is also the faith of Athanasius of Alexandria in the 4th century. You're going all the way back 1,600 years and believing the very same thing that this giant believed. Now that should cheer your heart. You see that you're not believing something that Denison invented or some weird Christian proposed or whatever else, you're believing something has been around for 1,600 plus years. And not only that, it feeds your heart, feeds your soul, it feeds your spirit with exaltation and praise. I can remember the first time I read it over 45 years ago, I was absolutely dumbfounded. And I read it in a liberal seminary because my liberal seminary made me read primary documents more's the pity of some reform seminaries i know so do yourself a favor seriously check out check it out check out athanasius on the incarnation it's free you don't even have to go to half price books and look for it You don't even have to get on the Internet and find a used copy. You can download it. It's free. Or you can sit there on the computer and read it. All it does is take your time. Come on. You waste enough time. We all do. I do. I know. But this would not be time wasted. I guarantee you. All right. If you sense that I have a great appreciation for Athanasius, you are right. He is an absolutely amazing man, by the grace of God. Now, what we are concluding here, as Athanasius concludes, is that all functional Christology rejects what we have just indicated from Athanasius' exegesis. All functional Christology, whether it's Unitarianism, whether it's Arianism, whether it's Liberalism, whether it's exemplarism, Jesus as a great example, whether it's moralism, Jesus is a great moral person, all of those functional Christologies are reductionist. They reduce Jesus to less than God. And as with Athanasius' battle with the Arians, they are all ultimately heretical. This is the reason we went into this lengthy and somewhat technical discussion of the distinction between ontic and functional Christology. Because all functional Christology, all entitlement Christology, is the entitlement that Jesus of Nazareth as a creature earns by doing good deeds or by making a great sacrifice of himself for a cause. Functional Christology won't save anyone. Because a functional Christ is not God. And once again, you need to have a God-man if you are going to be saved. Any questions about that or about Athanasius? You're welcome to sit in on our patristics class first semester and we'll take on Athanasius in more detail and particularly the Nicene Creed. And there you have to read it. I make you. <laughs> but I never had anybody come back to me and say that I was sorry I made I made them read it. <laughs> right Benji? Great stuff, right Benji? Yep, Benji nodding his head, he knows. <laughs> All right. Now back to that structure on the first page of that handout number 4 where I had the question mark at the top. It's taken us a long time or taken me a long time to get to this kind of bottom line point. But here is what I am suggesting about this whole exordium, that that word air that begins the uh, sevenfold uh, exordium or sevenfold discussion of who the Son of God is, that word air that begins it in verse uh, 2b, is an appointment or installation as designating the sun ontologically prior to the creation and prior to the incarnation. Why am I insisting upon this? I am insisting upon this for one practical reason, number one because I want to avoid any suggestion of functional Christology in this passage, including the term air as if Jesus is given that title after he does something. That is the uniform interpretation and exegesis of almost all modern commentators, including evangelicals. And I'm shocked by it because it is the pressure of the liberal reductionism that has caused even the evangelicals to waffle on this point. There is a great deal at stake here. And what is also at stake is a misreading of the text. Notice the sequence. He is appointed heir in verse 2b. Then in verse 2c, we have the creation described. In verse 3c, skipping verses 3a and b, we have the providence of God described, or the providence of the Son of God. He upholds all things by his mighty word. Hello, Isaac. Thank you. Where do you want me to put that?
4: Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear, happy birthday to you.
0: Two cakes for me. I not only take the cake, I take two cakes.
3: You had to do what? We had to get two to fit the candles. Yeah, we had to fit all the candles on. So. <laughs> Happy birthday! Sorry to interrupt, but Sorry. you said you were getting asked questions. You got. You got. We lit under, the candles. Yeah, and you got 67
0: like, oh, candles on there. Did. Yes, there's
3: 67 candles. <laughs> yes, but we were afraid we we're going to have to call the fire department <laughs> yes, so. if we didn't send them in soon. <laughs> That's why Isaac had to so, cut you so. off. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt.
4: Sorry. Thank <laughs> you.
0: You're we, we thought you. Uh, uh, to be continued. <laughs> Let him eat cake. Now, to return to the point I was making before I was so wonderfully interrupted.
3: Isaac is sorry.
0: uh, Isaac need make no apologies. Uh, (laughs) Birthdays only come around once a year. All right, let's look at the sequence in the author's thought. Uh, I pointed out that the word air I am suggesting, is an ontological designation. And I'm supporting that in part on the basis of the sequence of creation, which follows in uh, verse 2c and then providence in verse 3c. For providence succeeds creation in the order of events in the history of redemption, and you'll say, well, you actually waffled a little bit because you left out 3A and B. No, I'm not waffling because I think what has happened is that between creation and providence, our author has hinged the ontological nature of the sun. He squeezes it in between creation and providence so there is no doubt about who the creator is and who is the one who is providing for the creation. So you'll notice that he sandwiches or places between his declaration of the creative power of the Son of God his nature, his ontological nature, his glory, radiance, and his subsistence. Then He proceeds to talk about his providence in upholding all things, which is the history of redemption, so to speak, uh, uh, connected or concatenated by who it is, is who is the creator and who it is, who is the provider for the creation. Then he moves to the incarnation in the atonement and to his ascension in 3D and 3E, and finally comes back to use that word inheritance, which is a cognate of the root word heir in verse 2b, in verse 4. So, we have, once again, encore the parabola, moving from the ontological arena back to the ontological arena by way of the incarnational. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Because I believe that the parabola is the answer to the order and sequence of the writer's thought as he is reflecting upon the Son of God before creation, the Son of God as the Creator, the Son of God as the Redeemer and Ascended Redeemer, and the Son of God now declared in His eschatological inheritance. Well, what is the difference then in terms of the parabolic descent? The difference is the surpassing excellence of the exaltation which is theanthropically, theanthropically now declared. Before the theanthropic incarnation. In verse 2b, he is appointed the heir in terms of his very being as son. Then he makes the journey of the eschatological pilgrim to redeem, purify sin, to return to the Father ascending to the right hand of the majesty on high, And now he receives the inheritance of a better name than the angel, a more exalted name and position than the angels. He is already the heir from all eternity, appointed and installed. Now, after he takes his seat at the right hand of glory, he possesses his inheritance. Because, you see, He has undergone the joining of his anthropic nature to his thetic or to his God nature. And he has glorified that nature. Appointed heir as one designated to achieve the glorification of the nature which he must incarnate and redeem that having taken his seat at the right hand, he is declared the heir. He has the inheritance of that nature glorified and perfectly perfected. That's the point of the paradigm. That's the point of the parabola. That's the point of the sequence of his argument. He must be ontic deity as he is appointed heir in verse 2b, in order to achieve this inheritance at the end of verse 4 by way of the incarnational parabola. There is no retrospective designation of him being heir because he achieved some entitlement in verse 2b. No, this is an ontological designation from all eternity before there's any creation before there is anything in existence. But having been designated, then he must accomplish that inheritance. He must actually redeem that inheritance. He must glorify that inheritance, which is the anthropic or human nature that he joins with his divine nature and returns that united theanthropically to his who to his very being, returns it to the state of glory. So you see, the journey through the economy of redemption is the journey of glorification, the glorification of the nature, the nature that he takes in addition to his ontic deity. And that's the reason that I'm going to insist, I'm going to be dogmatically insistent upon this ontological character of the airship of the sun in verse 2b. This is not post-redemptive. This is not post-incarnational. If you go down that track, you are unwittingly, if not wittingly, playing the functional Christological game. That's the game you're going to play. Now, you may think that this is a tempest in a teapot and I'm dotting I's and crossing T's about jots and tittles that have no real substantial distinction or meaning to your own faith or understanding of the passage. Please, please understand that there is a whole literature out there insisting that 2b is post-incarnational. Post-incarnational. That is not reading the writer's parabola. That is not reading the glorious deity of this son of God. And that is not realizing that his incarnation is unto the glorification of his human nature. That's what he's going to do to your human nature. He's going to glorify to, he's the pioneer of that glorification. He's the pioneer and perfecter of its glorification, redemptive historically. That's what he came to do. He came to promise you the very same glory and glorification of your human nature as he accomplished in his own. And so you think, so you see there's movement here. There's progress. There's development here. This is not a static concept. It's not a retrospective concept in the sense that they're reading back airship out of post-incarnational, verse 4, dynamics. No, that's not what he's doing. And he's not doing it. Because the heir who is appointed and designated in verse 2b is God of gods. Already. Already. From all eternity. what the angels rejoice in and what that great cloud of witnesses rejoice in is that this sojourning pilgrim son who leaves the glory of the father and becomes incarnate in our human nature returns to that glory he had with the father from the foundation of the world but he returns with a nature which he will glorify in saving it now there's progress in the history of redemption even as there's progress in that little parabola you see You see how I read the text. You see how I think the writer is writing the text. It is from ontology to glorified ontology by way of humiliation and incarnation. Any questions? What does it mean in the
2: chapter, in verse 4, when it says, um, having become?
0: Because having taken the uh, human nature in union with his divine nature, he now is given a status that he did not have before. No, it's not a status of son of God. He already had that. It's a status of glorified, theanthropic son of God. And the angels never knew him as that, in that way before. And so he's become better than the angels in that regard. Not only because he's taken a human nature in union with his divine nature, which the angels never did. No permanent union, okay? But he's not only, he's taken that nature and he's taken it through the journey of redemption, the journey of incarnation and exaltation. Now he's exalted in a way they never saw him exalted before. And he's better in that regard. He's more surpassingly exalted and praised by them, having passed through the channel, passed through the parabola of the history of redemption. So
2: this inherited name is a the theanthropic name? Yes, it's the
0: exalted theanthropic name, correct. You notice my little uh, outline there. It's the exalted theanthropic name or nature that now is glorified by the angels. He becomes better than them in that respect. Stephen.
2: Yes. His uh, being appointed heir of all things there in to be that is that related to, you're saying that's, that's uh, related uh, to his ontological being?
4: Yes. In other words, so
2: this is related, this would be related to the, the perhaps... Generation
0: of the Son. Not general, eternal generation per se, but eternal designation of the eternally generated or only begotten Son. This is a designation. The word that, the, the, the translation that occurs in some of them, appointed, is an appropriate translation of the Greek word here. In other words, you're, you're, you're thinking of the Trinity in eternity, and the Son, already eternally generated by the Father, is designated or appointed heir of all things. At that time in ontological eternity. So it's a part of his personal distinction. Correct. Personal Correct. 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 It's, it's a part of it. his incommunicable property as a son of God. But, but my, I, my, my emphasis here is, is an ontic category. We're back in the re, re, reaches a range of eternity. Chris?
3: Isn't that? Yeah,
0: it's dis- it, that's the same thing Stephen was alluding to. It's distinct from his eternal begetting. Eternal begetting is his relational generation to his father. Okay, that's an entirely different dynamic than him being designated heir out of that relationship. In other words, it's not, it's not a time sequence, it's an order of event sequence, it's an order of logic sequence. Because he's eternally generated, eternally begotten, so he's eternally designated heir. But the one is precedent to the other because of the logic of sequence. That is part of an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> in other words, uh, you, you don't talk about uh, time in this. Uh, re, you don't talk about sequence of time. You talk about sequence of order. One thing must come before another in the order of, in the order of uh, process. All right, now I've added at the bottom of that page a little quotation from Francis Turretin, uh which I think is uh, a beautiful little summary of uh, some elements we have not uh, addressed. Uh, God is said to have spoken to us by his son as by a supreme prophet, who, after having purged our sins as a priest, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a king. And, of course, that's a great Calvinistic prophet-priest-king paradigm, and I thought that it would be interesting for you to see it coming out of the great Francis Turretin. Any questions about that? All right, now we'll take uh, on to uh, handout number five. So if you'll take that uh, in your hand and have that before you. We're now looking at verses 5 to 14. And Les mots crochet, which we had in the handout number 3, if you may recall. Also known as anadiplosis. And we've already, in that third handout, noted uh, the first instance of these crocheted words. You notice in verse 4 and 5, the word angel in verse 4 and the word angel in verse 5, they are hooked together, very much like you crochet uh, uh, t- uh, two pieces of thread all right, so that connection or crochet device hooks the exordium to the rest of the first chapter, to the body of verses 5 to 14. My point here is that there is a transitional link that connects verses 1 to 4 to verses 5 to 14, and it is done with the hook word angels. Now, skim down and see if you can find any more of these hook words. Benji, is that a look of knowing?
2: Um, Well, uh, son and father, father, son.
0: Mm, True, but I'm looking for something that kind of attaches two verses together or two sections together. Take a look at verse 6 and verse 7. You're nodding your head. What do you see there?
2: Angels.
0: Angels again. For once again, we have the very same hook word, angels in verse 6 from the quotation, and angels in verse 7. There's one more. It's a little more difficult to see in your English text, but it is in verse 9 and 10. The last line of verse 9, the oil of gladness above thy companions... And the first line of verse 10, thou, Lord. You'll notice that the second person, personal pronoun, is used. And in the Greek text, the you or thy is the end of verse 9. And the you or thou is the beginning of verse 10. So we have another uh, hook uh, word or hook connection here. It's a personal pronoun. You at the end of 9 and you at the beginning of verse 10. All right, so, uh, once again, we have some uh, structural patterns. We have the use of some literary connections. He is concatenating uh, these passages. And so, as one writer has said, we have before us a string of pearls. Yet more concatenation, as we noted in the Exordium, verses 2 to 4. All right, now, these string of pearls are citations from the Old Testament. These are quotations. And if you have a marginal reference Bible, uh, which I highly recommend, of course, then you can follow uh, what is being cited. So, in verse 5a, what passage is being quoted there? Anyone? Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm two, verse seven. Now, in verse 5b... All of you who were here last year for the David series ought to nail that one. Oh yes, you can look at your margin.
2: <laughs> Second
0: Samuel chapter seven, verse fourteen, the Davidic covenant, very important to the development of the uh, David narrative. Uh, verse six a, what is being cited there? Deuteronomy 32, 40, 30. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. We come to verse 7. What is he quoting in verse 7? Psalm 104, Psalm 104 verse 4. Now, verses 8 and 9 are continuous. What's being cited there? Psalm 45, Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are continuous. What's being cited there? Psalm 102, 26, and 27. Psalm 102, 102, okay, 26 and 27. And finally, verse 13.
2: Psalm
0: 110, verse 1. All right, now... How many expressions of the nature of the sun did we have in the exordium? Look back to your previous handout. Handout number four. We had seven. How many expressions of Old Testament quotes from the Septuagint are here? There are Seven. The parallel is significant. He is backing up the expressions of the nature of the sun with these seven proof texts. So he's reinforcing what he has already outlined in terms of the sevening pattern. Okay, The seven characteristics of the sun are now going to be supported by seven proof texts from the Septuagint. LXX there, for those of you who are not familiar with that, is the sign of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So-called from the Roman numeral 70 because it was alleged that 70 translators in Alexandria, Egypt, produced it. That's a myth, but nonetheless, the myth lives on in the name of the version. Now, I'm not going to argue the uh, point of the quotations from the Septuagint, I'm going to accept it. Uh, I did begin to work this summer uh, on the Masoretic version of these passages, and I began to see some things that I think may qualify uh, the uh, allegation that these are all septuagintal or quotations for the Septuagint, but I'm not prepared to defend that uh, or to advance it with any kind of dogmatic certainty. I just did not have time to finish that work. But nonetheless, we'll go on the basis that these are quotations from the Septuagint. Uh, They certainly do appear to be. Uh, my, uh, My work this summer was to attempt to look at why the Septuagint was rendering the Masoretic text the way it was. So we have seven expressions from the Old Testament Septuagint on the superiority of the Son to the angels. The superiority of the Son to the angels. He's received a better name than they. Now, that is obvious because of his ontic deity, number one. But it is also obvious because of his theanthropic journey, number two. Okay? So, he has a superior name, a superior nature, and the author is going to underscore that by looking at some passages about angels in the Old Testament. In the process... He uses an inclusio device. Notice verse 5a and verse 13a. Those are questions. They are symmetrical rhetorical questions. There are five Greek words in those questions which are common to both of them. In other words, the very same five Greek words occur in 5a and in 13a. They do not occur in the same order, but nonetheless, each of the words is there. This is an intentional inclusio device. Now, these symmetrical rhetorical questions obviously have the rhetorical answer. To which of the angels did he ever say? And the answer is to none of them. To none of them. Okay, it's a rhetorical question. They are symmetrical rhetorical questions. (coughs) What is he doing by this inclusio? He is going to bracket this emphatic declaration that the Son of God is not an angel. For to which of the angels did he ever say X, Y, Z, seven times? Okay, and on down the list he goes. And having included that by this framing device... He is forming the crux of his argument that the Son is greater than the angels, more excellent than the angels. He has a nature that is not angelic. He is emphatically driving the point home from the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. So important in the history of the discussion of this chapter, in the battleground that it has become in Unitarianism, Arianism, and all other forms of reductionist heresy. All right. So, the literary clues that are here are literary clues of a theological nature. He is bracketing his argument. He is bracketing his proof text argument. He is bracketing his biblical argument for the demonstration of surpassing excellence of the deity of the Son of God. And why is he doing this? Because the Son of God is no angel, and the Son of God is no creature. The Son of God is God. That's his point. All right now <clears throat> that means we have to talk about angels. So in spite of the blasphemous touched by an angel TV series and it is blasphemous it is blasphemous in spite of the popularity of angels on little christmas cards and decorating well valentines and so on and so forth we have to talk about angels. Are angels real, or are they imaginary? How do you know they are real? Let's have somebody read Acts 23, verse 8. Acts 23, verse 8.
4: Well, if they're
3: not real, I would have been out of this world a whole whale of a number of years ago.
0: (laughs) That's not Acts 23 8.
2: I know, but...
0: (laughs) Let's stick to the text, Cheryl. Go ahead, (laughs) Benny.
2: The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither
0: angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. All right. Here is Paul talking about the doctrine of the Sadducees. They are Sadducee for another for a number of reasons. Sad, you see. okay, because they don't believe in the resurrection. They also do not believe in the existence of angels. Of course, the resurrection is a reality, as Paul proclaims it, and implicitly, if not explicitly, here angels are a reality as well. So they are not imaginary beings. They are real. Beings, not phantasms, not fictional creations, not fanciful illusions—they are real beings. But what kind of beings are they? What kind of beings are they?
2: Spirit.
0: Spiritual. Spirit. How do you know? How do you know they're spirits? It says so. Says. It says so. Where does it say so? 14. Yes, yes, Hebrews 14. <laughs> are they not all ministering spirits? Okay, there is your uh, definition of the kind of being the angels are. All right, so we have identified their nature. We have identified their essence, their being. We have identified their reality. They are spirits. God is a spirit, true, What did I just quote? John 4, 4, what verse? 24. John 4, 24, God is a spirit. Jesus to the woman at the well in Samaria. So God is a spirit. True? Yes. John 4, 24 says that angels are spirit. Is God an angel? What's the difference? God. What's the difference? Angels are, created. Angels are created. They are created spirits. They are dependent spirits. God is uncreated. He is an uncreated spirit. He is an independent spirit. So here we are on the cusp of the creator-creature distinction. God is not this, these are not God. The angels are spirit beings, but they are not God as spirit. For he is uncreated, they have been made by him. All right, now, as uh, created spirits, they have no what? What? They have no body, they have no somatos, they are asomatic, asomatic, without a body. But, we must qualify that. They are asomatic, that is, they have no body by nature, but they can take a body for the purpose of angelophany. What do I mean by angelophany? Revelation. Revelation, manifestation of an angel. Theophany, manifestation of God. Angelophany, manifestation of an angel. They can reveal themselves as God uh, pleases or designates that they display themselves for particular purposes. So they can take a body, but they are without body by nature. All right, so they are spirits, created spirits, without a body. Can they communicate with one another? Yes. How do you know? Somebody read Isaiah 6.3. You have it, Stephen?
2: And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of, is the Lord of hosts.
0: Who was calling out one to another?
2: The cherubim. Nope. No.
0: The seraphim. The seraphim. It's the only place the seraphim are mentioned in scripture. Okay? Alright, so these angelic beings can communicate by calling or singing to one another. We also know that they can communicate with one another because of the angelic chorus over Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus. All right. Well, then, if they can communicate, all right, how do they know things? They don't have a body, so they don't know things empirically. Well, do they know things? And if they do know things, how do they know them? What is the epistemology of angels? Pardon? They're created
3: knowing.
0: They're created knowing? Mmm. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, That's a great chain of being for you. Pardon? That's a great chain of being. Yeah, it's a great (laughs) chain of being. (laughs) Um, mm. Yes, I, 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 I'm I not sure about that, so I'm going to skip that one. Uh, but the question is, how do they know? Not whether they've been created knowing, but how do they know if they don't know from sensory perception? Stephen?
2: Are, are they personal beings?
0: They are personal beings. So how do these personal beings know anything? Art? God communicates to God communicates, but how does he communicate? He doesn't communicate by sensory or empirical means. How does he communicate to them?
3: The same way he communicates that we are held accountable for his, the knowledge of his existence uh, Romans 1. It's the same thing for the angels.
0: No, I don't think so.
4: Sing and they speak, then they obviously can hear. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
0: I was waiting for someone to exploit that trap I apparently laid for myself. <laughs> uh, let's. Let's leave the manifestation because those are visible manifestations, okay? Actually, Isaiah sees them, and they are seen in the hills above Bethlehem singing these angelical choirs. So I'm going to say that that's a part of this ability to manifest themselves in angelophanies. But in and of themselves, how do they communicate? They communicate mentally, intellectually, okay? They do not communicate empirically or through sensory expression. right.
4: How do you know that?
0: How do I know that? Because, as Jesus says, they are like the angels. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, which means they are not sensory beings. Okay.
1: they they were held accountable for their uh, fault. Now, I'm not to that point yet,
0: but thank you, Ben, for anticipating me. That's the next issue we want to discuss.
2: We use to prove they communicated were ones in which their bodies supposedly. <laughs> uh,
0: we are uh, we we are, uh, uh, saying that as spirits with the power to communicate out of their creative endowment, okay, it means that in some way they have to interact, okay. So there's got to be some kind of means of communication. And uh, bends on to it here, but I want to, I want to take it a step at a time to confirm this. Yes, Christ-
2: have the example in of Job, right? And the devil communicating with God in heaven in Job. Yes.
0: yes, yes. Uh, uh, yes, that is uh, that vision or that uh, scene is uh, is an endorsement of this. There is some kind of, of uh, communication there. It's, it seems like it's verbal, uh, but, of course, it's not necessarily sensorially verbal. Yes, Kristen? Are
3: they created in the image
0: of God? It is not said that they are created in the image of God. That doesn't mean that they're not. It might be an argument from silence. Uh, <clears throat> But they are uh, created with the ability to communicate. Uh, They have intellectual capacity. Uh, They are thinking beings. And as we'll point out in a minute, they are moral beings. Uh, Gerald?
3: When they take on a body, which I know happens, at that point are they able to, are they communicating like, I'm communicating with you. Yes, they
0: are able to talk audibly, physically, uh, <clears throat> but that is not what they are in and of their uh, nature without that body. They are accommodating themselves to the empirical capacity of the body they possess for that particular purpose and time. Okay, now, <clears throat> let's take the next question. They are creatures. How do they know? They
3: never the
0: question. They 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 know by knowing. They are intellectual. <coughs> they think where they are? <laughs> <laughs> there is there is
4: this
0: there is this mental dimension or intellectual dimension of communication that. Uh, transpires between them in other words they understand one another's mental capacity mental thoughts mental expressions etc uh, the, the point here is simply to indicate that as spirit beings they do not communicate in an empirical okay in this dimension except as they are manifested for the purpose of an angelophony all right now since they are creatures when were they created
4: They weren't creatures.
0: They are creatures. They're spirit creatures, but they are creatures. When were they created? They're not eternal. They're they're not God, okay? They are creatures.
2: Before he created
0: the world. Before he created the world, okay? What passage would you cite for supporting... The fact that the angels were created before he created the heavens and the earth.
3: Job, it talks about them singing at the creation? What passage is that?
0: Since you brought it up. It's Job, isn't it? It's Job. What? You can't get away with just saying it's Job. <laughs> you only get a C for saying it's Job. Hey, she got your birthday party. <laughs> That doesn't earn her any merits. (laughs) All right, Job 38, verse 7. It's the appearance of God out of the whirlwind in Job 38. And he asks the question, where were you when the sons of morning sang together? So the implication of the passage here of the sons of the morning are the angelic beings is that they were already there. When God made the heavens and the earth, how long were they there before God created in the heavens and the earth? It's almost a nonsense question because we're into the realm of eternity there. So time is meaningless here. It's a matter of sequence. So here we're talking about sequence. God exists from all eternity. He creates the angels at some point in eternity and then he creates the heavens and the earth. So they are there to sing When he creates, when he creates the creation. Now there's another reflection about their creation in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. This is a very interesting passage which is often overlooked. But let's take a look at that. Uh, You may know that Nehemiah chapter 9 is one of the great prayers of the Old Testament. Uh, the Nines prayers in the Old Testament, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, they are a wonderful study in Old Testament prayer in and of themselves. So, if you're interested in meditating upon some uh, prayers given by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, they're all in the Nines. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. Alright, in, in, in Nehemiah 9, verse 6, notice what he says. <clears throat> Uh, He's he's making a prayer and uh, confessing or adoring God, Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it. Now here, the heaven of heavens is that eternal ontological or eschatological arena which is distinct from the created heavens. And notice, he made the heaven of heavens with all their host, who are the host of heavens? Well, the angels are also called the host of God. Sabaoth. Lord God Sabaoth. The Lord God of hosts. What hosts? The hosts of heaven, namely the angelic hosts. So this passage is describing how God created the heaven of heavens, that is the region which would, which these angels would inhabit, which the host would inhabit, and, and he creates the host to inhabit it, namely the angelic beings To be a part of it. So, before the creation of the earth, the creation of the heaven of heavens and the hosts that inhabit it. All right, how many kinds of angels are there? Two two kinds. Two kinds. What are they?
4: Cherubim.
0: No. No. Good no. First Timothy chapter five, verse twenty-one. Benji, would you read the verse? Oh. <laughs> Something about. We don't want
1: any paraphrases here. Before the Lord and the Good.
2: Just a moment five
0: twenty-one. Yes, five twenty-one. So the
2: sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Yes.
0: Notice the elect angels means that there are
4: non-elect angels,
0: because elect angels is restrictive. It is particular. It implies that there are non-elect angels. So, good Calvinists will say there are two kinds of angels: elect and non-elect. Right. We'll start with election, right? Right. Okay. Good and bad is not wrong. But more precise, <laughs> more theologically reformed, is what Paul says here elect and non elect. Yes?
3: We were created angels. So, I mean, I understand the moral categorization, but they're still the same type of angel. One is fallen, one isn't, but they're still the same type of angel,
0: right? Yes, they're the same kind of angelic being, okay? But we're asking how many kinds there are, and now we're talking about their basic moral distinction. All right? So, when we say good and bad, we're now talking about John six forty four. What does Jesus say in John 6, I'm sorry, John eight forty four. 44? Jesus makes a comment about the angels here.
3: You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. But there Stop is Stop no right lie.
0: there. Not holding to
4: the truth. The truth.
0: All right. So now comes this moral character of those that hold or belong to the truth, and those that depart from it. Those that embrace falsehood. So, elect and non-elect from 1 Timothy 5, good and bad, or those that are holding the truth, those not holding the truth from John 8, from Jesus' very own words. Well then, back to the previous question from Kristen, how were they created? What kind of moral character did they have when God made them? Good. They were good. What happened?
4: <coughs>
0: Some of them fell. How do you know?
4: Isaiah. Yeah, don't say that. They'll ask you where. No.
0: Jude. Not Isaiah. Jude. Jude
2: and. Oh, yeah.
0: Where? Yes. 2 Peter. 2 Peter, correct. All right, let's start with 2 Peter. Passage in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. Does anyone have it? Please read it.
1: For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment.
0: Notice. Angels sinned, and God cast them into hell. Now, keep your finger there. Let's turn over to Jude, verse 6.
2: And angels who did not
4: keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept the eternal
2: bond under darkness for the judgment of the great
0: day. All right, they did not keep their own domain. When they sinned, they rebelled against their original creation, their original moral nature. All right, now, we have a pattern here then that the angels were created good, but some of them fell and became evil. Does that sound like a pattern you know from something else? Yes fall of man so that man being created Adam being created good he falls after a period of what probation Probation. so we have a human probation and we also have an angelic probation very interesting isn't it very interesting that we see, in a sense, a kind of recapitulation in the fall of the angels and the fall of mankind. In other words, they were created good, but as the Westminster Confession says, mutably so. They could change. They were able to rebel against their goodness. They were able to rebel against their moral nature and pervert it, so that they fell in sin and were cast out of heaven. Now, having been cast out of heaven, down into hell, what is their destiny? Any hope of changing their destiny? Well, mankind does the same thing. So Adam is sentenced to hell, having rebelled against God. Is he reserved for eternal damnation? No. No. Oh, so you see, God more gracious to us than to the angels. He has not dealt with us as he dealt with the angels, because once they rebelled, he fixed them. In that state, their moral nature became utterly righteous or utterly depraved. Total depravity is not utter depravity. Total depravity is still restrained by common grace. But the damned angels are utterly depraved. And they are reserved in that state. They are fixed in the state of damnation. There is no redemption for the angelic, uh, re- the angelic rebels. Okay, that is the tragic uh, s- the scenario, but it is what the inspired writers say about this angelic revolt. Christian, question?
3: The difference in their culpability, I mean, obviously mankind had to be deceived, deceived by by Satan into sin, or well, is deceived by Satan to sin, so going back to how do they know that question, they knew, so why would God put them in a probationary period? I mean, if there's a greater culpability for them sinning, that God doesn't choose to
0: okay. Yeah, you're, you're, you're pressing on the question as to what it is that incites their rebellion against God. All right, here we have perfectly good spirit beings, moral spirit beings. Some of them rebel against God. Some of them sin against God. What is it that provokes the sin in them?
2: Pride.
0: I'm sorry, pride. I'm not un- understanding you, Marine. Pride. Pride. Yes, but but what what incites the pride? See, what's what's the spark that sets them off?
2: Power. Power. Creation of, or redemption of man, John Milton.
0: Thank you, Professor Samuel. No, it's, the,
3: it's the sun. It's the the. the, the, the Naming of the Sun that's, what
0: that's all it. right uh, the mention of Milton is remarkable uh, not only because it's remembered here uh, and, and properly so but because of Milton's own remarkable insight into it and he's dependent upon some others in this observation he's not unique in this regard the uh, the uh, bedeviling question no pun intended there the bedeviling question of what it is that set the angels off to rebel. And Milton, in his Paradise Lost, places that event in the enthronement of the Son. As the Son of God is designated as the Redeemer of the world, Satan becomes insanely jealous of him and rebels and tries to unseat him and out of that rebellion is cast down into hell there in adamantine chains who durst defy the omnipotent to arms. All right, now, Milton's insight is remarkable and plausible. It is conceivable that Satan's hostility to God in the person of his son manifested in his assault upon Jesus in the probation of Christ in the wilderness. The second Adam undergoes a probation as well. In Satan's assault upon Christ, there it is possible that Satan is manifesting. You see his jealousy against the Son and trying to subvert his uh, heir, his being heir of all things, his being the glorious Redeemer and inheritor of, uh, of of the heavens and the earth. So Milton is on to something there, and yet we cannot say with uh, that Milton is dogmatically right because the Scriptures are silent on it. Pride is involved, yes, but what is it that sparks the pride of Satan? What is it causes him to exalt himself in pride and hubris above the throne of God, above the person of God? It's because he hates the Son. It's because he sees himself as worthy of the very glorification and honor that belongs to the Son of God. And, of course, this is the endemic sin of all those who abide in hell. They hate the Son of God. Whether they hate the fact that he's the Savior, whether they hate the fact that he's the King of Nations, whether they hate the fact that he is the glorified and adored beloved of the Father, they hate the Son. For if you do not love him, then you hate him. There's no lukewarm in between. Satan hates the Son of God as much as he hates God himself. And so Milton may be right about this, okay? Though we cannot conclude dogmatically because the Scriptures leave it at the point of, yes, they endured a probation, they were, some of them rebelled, and they were cast down and fixed in that state. All right, one more point here uh, before we leave. <clears throat> Can the angels perform miracles? Psalm seventy one nineteen Psalm seventy one verse nineteen For thy righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens Thou who has done great things, O God, who is like Thee. The angels are creatures and cannot do great, miraculous things. So, in this chapter, we have noted the cessation of Revelation. We have noted the cessation of the Charismata in conjunction with chapter 2.4. Now we have an endorsement of the cessation of angelophanies. He is marshalling all of this material in order to show the finality of the surpassing excellence of the Son of God and the fact that those former ways of God manifesting himself have now come to an end. Well, then, are the angels just sitting around doing nothing? No, they are Hebrews 1.14, ministering spirits. Do they intercede with God on our behalf? No, there is only one intercessor. Are there guardian angels for us? No, there are no guardian angels. That's a pagan idea adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. The whole host of the angels serve the elect of the Lord. No one special angel for one elect person. What do they do in ministering to the saints? I can't tell you very much about that. Not very much is revealed about that. But that they do is true how they do it i leave to eternity there are orders or ranks of them we've already named the seraphim and the cherubim there are angels and archangels paul in colossians 1:16 and ephesians 1:21 indicates that there are dominions thrones principalities and powers usually these are interpreted to mean evil or demonic angels That is possibly correct as an interpretation. It could also mean that there are uh, principalities and powers (coughs) of uh, the kingdom of heaven. But bottom line, Christ is greater than the angels. The Son of God is not an angel. Son of God is not a creature. The Son of God is God, the second person, the ontological trinity. And next week we'll begin to pick apart these proof texts from the seven uh, concatenated string of pearls that he that he places here in, at the end of chapter one. Any questions or comments, Ben? Well,
1: the, the uh, guess earlier, the difference, something about whether we know of another state of, uh, of what the angels did when they fell, something like that. And it seems to me... Uh, But the angels, when they sinned, each one sinned on his own behalf. And their sin did not affect any other angel. Like Adam, he sinned and he sinned. We all sinned in him. But that representation idea is not among the angels. Yes, that is
0: true. There is no kind of covenant with the angels or federal headship. That is true. Good point, Ben. Yes, Stephen?
2: It would appear then that that, uh a lot of what's been drawn out of the scriptures about angels isn't always directly stated, but it would appear that we could perhaps also say that angels are, uh, uh, are while they are immortal, they they are not eternal. So there there must also be subject to, to time and history.
0: When they become angelophonic. <laughs> Not in their nature. Now, it is true that they're created beings. Okay? So they're created in a sequence of uh, of eternity. Okay? But not not subject to time, per se. Put in a space, confined in a space, as the demons in hell are, because hell is a place. You know what kind of a place? It's a spiritual place. So we were talking about another kind of dimension. So we have, to, we have to we have to begin to think in terms of what what is it to be a spirit in a spirit dimension? Is it to be watching the clock on the wall? No. Is it to be uh, uh, re- uh, regulated by boundaries? No. Even though they're not on the present.
2: So so they're. They're mutable, our larger catechism teaches that, and I think that's scriptural, but... Not
0: after they pass the probation or fail the probation, go ahead.
2: Okay, so they were created mutable. They're created mutable,
0: but now they're fixed. (coughs)
3: Kristen? Um, They're sent, the fallen angels are sent to hell, but they're allowed to walk the earth.
0: Why? Uh, <clears throat> to remind us that we are struggling against evil principalities and powers. Uh, <clears throat> yes, they are uh, permitted to, to uh, shall I say, exacerbate the curse in going to and fro on the earth. It is a part of the, the role of, of the curse that has come upon the created order, that the demons can be unleashed upon us and upon the earth. Now, of course, you get into the question, how do I know there's a demon there? How do I know this is a demonic event? Well, when I was tabbling around with the charismatic movement, they used to say, if you see a black monkey on your back, then you know you've got a demon or something like that. Well, that's nonsense. That's that's rubbish. But they are there, and they are still abroad. I don't deny it, but I don't have the miraculous gift of discernment or exorcism. Jesus and the apostles did have that. We don't have that, <clears throat> but, that I, but that doesn't mean they're not there. You know, they're not, they're not responsible for mental illness. That's not what mental illness is, is and so on. So we, you know, we discard that. Yes, they actively tempt as the devil himself actively tempts. Only He can only be tempting you. He can't be tempting me. Let's hope that he's at your house when he's not at mine. <laughs> anyway, no, I don't really mean that. I just, but my point is, you see, they can only be one place at one time. Go ahead, because they're creatures. Go ahead. There's more ice cream and cake back there. Go ahead, Pete. but <laughs>
1: The, uh, we have their good angels guard
0: us. Psalm 91. Well, he gives his angels charge over the, in the sense of ministering to you. But how did, what does that mean? Uh, lest you dash your foot against the rock. That's a messianic prediction. I don't think you can generically talk about uh, us being in that same category.
4: But they protect us
0: they 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 do in some way but how do they do it see that's what I, that's my conundrum the scriptures don't reveal the mechanism by which they work
3: yeah
4: no, they do it oh yeah <laughs>
2: Uh, I can't touch them, and I can't feel them, and I can't smell them, but I know they're there. Well,
0: they are there, okay? But uh, we, we, we we might have to have a long discussion of how you know they're there. But anyway, you, you know they're there because the Bible says they're there. Well, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Benji? Um, well, this is off the angel
4: topic,
2: but that might be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> Matthew 22, I think it is, the parable of the tenants... Um, there's some interesting it seems to me parallels between what's happening there and what's happening in Hebrews 1 the prophets or well i take them to be prophets the servants being sent by the master to the yes. nation and then the son comes yes. and the son is labeled heir yes what is the what relationship <coughs> or does that illuminate the passage in any way in yes I, I i
0: think the final the final revelation of the father or the owner of the vineyard uh, this is the last chance. This is the last declaration of his own self disclosure. So I think there are very strong uh, similarities between those two, and Voss makes that point in his reflection upon this exordium, though he doesn't develop it, but he does note it. So it's, of course, a uh, fertile field for an article. Voss well, said You volunteer then, Pete? No, no. no. Well, thank you for the birthday party again. Uh, See you next week. No birthday cake or ice cream then. It'll all be gone. (laughs)